This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Star Parshish Shmini. We're dealing with a Pasuk that has a great big vav in it. Parakut Aleph Pasuk Membeis. Kol any type of creature that goes on its stomach, the Choholichal Arba, and anything that goes on its four legs, Adkol Marber Aglaim, all the way up until an animal, a creature that has many legs, the Choholicharats or Shoritzel Arts, to any Sharats that crawls on the line, Lo Soklum, can't eat them, Kishaketim, because they're absolutely disgusting. And Rashi tells us that every single one of the words of this Pusik is referring to a certain creature that cannot be eaten by a Jew. Some of the words are a little more inclusive, some of them are a little more exclusive. The Rabbin Bahaya says some of them are actually dangerous to be eaten, you'd assume because of the poison involved by all of them, while others are just forbidden by a Kaddish Baruch Hu because they're absolutely disgusting. You can't imagine even eating them in the first place. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu is mezake us with mitzvos to not eat them. So when we sit there and say, that bug is disgusting, I'm not going to eat it, we actually get a mitzvah by not eating them. So the order goes from creatures that have no legs at all, says Targum Yonasan, all the way up to creatures that are filled with legs, that have legs all over their body. And it goes from snakes until centipedes, including all types of bugs in between, anything that would be in between itself. Holech al-gachon specifically refers to a snake. Gachon means bent over, to be bent over from one to the other, and it's a type of animal that walks, so to speak, while completely bent over on its stomach. One of the curses of the snake was holech al-gachon, that it goes, it's able to walk, al-gachon katelech, that it will go on its stomach itself, so it makes sense since it used the word gachon by the snake and it's over here as well right it makes sense that it refers to the actual snake Targum Yonason says just like Rashi refers to a snake and that's the most obvious but there's a word kol in front of it kol holech al gachon the word kol includes any creature that's like a snake says Rashi that includes shulshulin Shoshulin means a type of worm that comes out of the ground. That's like a snake in the sense that it doesn't have any legs. And the Sitzeh Chamin calls it a long earthworm that has no legs, lives in the ground, lives by garbage dumps, and especially comes out by the rain, after the rainfall in the summer itself. It includes anything that's similar to that. It really doesn't have to be those two. It could be any type of creature that comes similar to those types of animals. Then you have the word Holechal Arba. An animal that goes on all four legs. Now that, says Rashi, refers to scorpions. Scorpions is in the Akrave. Here's the only issue. Technically, scorpions do not have four legs at all. They have eight legs. Aside from that, there's two pincers in front, those two huge things in front, and then obviously the tail that goes behind it. But they have eight legs, not six like any insect. They're all arachnids, meaning they're in the same category as most spiders, the same way that spiders have eight legs, not six. So too scorpions, they really have eight legs, not six. It's possible that somehow it walks on four legs and it has four arms in front. That is possible that every scorpion has four and four, but it doesn't look that way. If you look at a regular scorpion, it doesn't look like it's leaning on its back four legs and the front four legs are just directing it. It seems like all eight legs are used to go that way. Somebody told me maybe it refers to when it says holechal arba, when it refers to going on four, it means four on each side, that it is four legs on each side of its body. But I really have no idea how holechal arba refers to a scorpion. To me, it makes absolutely no sense. It should be holechal shmone 
or at least holech al sheish, and say the first two legs somehow are leg. I don't know. Some somehow some way, but how it refers to a scorpion, I have no clue. The word kol refers to a chapushis, which is a beetle. Now, once again, all beetles have six legs. It could be the back four and then the front two are considered arms in some way, right? Maybe that's what it refers to. But how that's four, I'm not sure either. But the coal includes all types of beetles, and there are tens of thousands of different species of beetles, so it could be referring to all of those altogether. And then comes marbiraglaim, the highest level of legs, in which we're referring to a centipede. The French word that Rashi uses here is exactly that. It says centipede inside there. Legs from its head to its tail all the way through. Targum Yonason says it as well. Likely it includes millipedes, which are also common in Eretz Yisrael. Millipedes with the thousands, so to speak, of legs that go around it. Even from this creature, you learn an unbelievable lesson. The Rimi Paris said he was involved in a fight between the Rabbanim and the Karaites, the Karayim, who didn't believe in Torah Shabbat. The Karayim believed in the Psukim Stam, the actual Torah Shabbat. They didn't believe in what was Torah Shabbat. The Karaites accused the rabbis of gross exaggeration in the Gemara and said that there's so many Gemaras that seem to exaggerate the truth where you see something and it's not exactly as is. It's something a little bit there. They brought up Rabba Barbar Khana Gemaras in the fifth parakel Baba Basra, Bechoros Chasim Abbas, Shabbos Nundalim Abbas, Pesachim Nundzayim Aleph, and there were so many other places. And the rabbis said, you have to understand, such ideas are allegories. And Mishalom. Now, there is a Marsha and a Ben Yishchai and a Ben Yoyada that says there's a Pshat to all these Gemaras as well. That somehow the Rabbah, Barbachan, and Gemaras are Pshat. But the answer the rabbis gave to the characters is exactly this. They're Mishalom. They're allegories meant to tell you something and meant to make you think. And they said not only that, but we see it in Kohelis itself. If I would live 2,000 years, says Shlomo Melech. Obviously, Shlomo didn't mean that he would live for 2,000 years. He's saying what I could accomplish, what I could do if I only lived 2,000 years. And obviously, there's exaggeration. By Daniel, by the Maraglim. The Maraglim said the Arum were bitsuros bashamayim. They were fortified all the way to the heavens. Obviously, the cities were not fortified with walls all the way up to the heavens. But it was as if such a thing was there. And even in Chulin, Tzadi Alephon Beis, Dibru Chachamim Lashon Guzma. That the Chachamim speak in a Lushan of exaggeration. They do that on purpose. The Tosefis Bracha, Baruch Epstein says, by this creature, we see how normal it is to exaggerate. A centipede literally means a hundred legs. Centa, as in century, is a word for hundred, and pede is legs. It has a hundred legs. But centipedes don't have a hundred legs, they have 32 legs if they're males. 34 legs if they're females. That's all the legs that they have. Somebody who spent the amount of time counting up the legs. We've got to help them. <laughs> so Something has to be done. But they have 32, 34 legs. So why is it called a centipede? Says the Torah, Tosefis Bracha, it's clearly an exaggeration meant to impress and is done on purpose because it looks like it has 100 legs. And that's an amazing idea. We see normal people talk in such a fashion. A priest once asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I don't know which one this was, but my assumption is, is that it's Ramanach Mendel, because whenever you just say the Lubavitcher Rebbe in a story, it refers to the last Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, right? So about the Gemara and Bechoros, that Nun Zayin, where the egg of a Yochanai bird fell and destroyed 60 cities. So he's asked that question and said, how could such a thing be? How is it possible that a bird had an egg that was so big, it was able to destroy 60 cities? It's impossible. And he answered, years ago, the Tsar in Russia forbade the Jews from living within a certain amount of miles from a certain area. 
because the Jews were not able to be there and the Jews were providing those cities with a lot of goods and services, the entire marketplace in that area was destroyed. There was no trade between the places. The roads closed down and the cities were completely gone. Cities ended up in five, ten years, they were gone. Sort of like those cities in the West where when the train stopped going through those cities, the cities just shut down. There was nothing else there for them. When the train didn't go through anymore, what was the point in living in those cities? Like we have in the Wild West, so too over here, the Tsar made a decision and all of a sudden the cities were gone. So they hinted to it in the Jewish Chronicles. They didn't want to say it straight out. So they wrote the following. They said, with one drop of ink, the Tsar was able to destroy a hundred cities. Now, what does that mean? You look at that and you say, with one drop of ink, how could the Tsar destroy an entire bunch of cities with only one drop of ink? But it's because when the Tsar signed the declaration saying that no Jews were allowed to be anywhere near those cities, he essentially caused those hundreds of cities to be destroyed, the hundred cities to be destroyed. Those who knew what it meant understood what the Jews were writing in the Chronicles. And those that didn't know what it meant, they had no idea. And it looked silly to them and it looked like it was a total exaggeration. But if you understood what they meant, it made a lot of sense. We don't have any idea what these Gemaras are talking about. So to us, it doesn't make any sense when you say a Yochanai bird egg destroyed 60 cities. But if we lived at the time, we would say, ah, now I understand why they wrote it that way. And that's something, says Lubavitch Rebbe, that makes a ton of sense. And it's all learned from this idea that we see just from the name centipede, just from that name itself. Finally, there's the end of the Pasuk. All of the different creatures that crawl upon the ground. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, this includes bugs that are born from Ipush. In other words, bugs that are so small, insects that are so tiny that you can never see their eggs. The eggs are so small they cannot be seen by the naked eye. So it looks like they weren't born from parents. They didn't have a mother and a father. It looks like they were born out of thin air. They came from the rat. It's as if they were spontaneously generated, as if they came from absolutely nothing. Since they're so small, they're still forbidden to be eaten. You cannot eat those bugs, even though they seem like they're not born from other creatures. But on Shabbos, it might be mutter to kill them. If you cannot see the eggs and they're that tiny, right, then later on, on Shabbos, you might be able to kill them. Not to, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just saying. On Shabbos, yeah, 100%. I just said that. On Shabbos, they have the ability to be killed for that reason because they weren't born from something in which you saw them originally and they're not considered like a creature because they're not born from males and females. We have an ability to see nowadays through microscopes that you, they are born through eggs and they have through males and females. And although it could be true that Chazal are talking about a type of creature that is spontaneously generated, it's possible that such a creature could exist. Our science doesn't prove it yet, but that means yet. Who knows what they're going to prove, right? But it seems like that the idea behind it is, is that when it's that small and it can't be seen, you'd think it's a different creature. Says the Torah, Bechol HaSharetz 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 any Sharetz that's Sharetz on the land itself, even even though it seems like it's not born from a mother, a male, and a female, nonetheless, nonetheless, they're still us to be eaten. The Rambam in Hilchos Machlos Asur's Parak Beis talks about this pasuk quite a bit. It says the words Allah Aretz are very important. They indicate that a Sharetz is forbidden if it crawls onto the land itself. Meaning, it's got to be a Sharetz that's on the ground itself. Insects that are born in a different fashion. What that means is they're born within fruit or they're born in water and have never been on the ground itself, 
whether they've always been in a fruit or always been in the water their entire lives, may not technically be involved in this iser and may be able to be eaten with the fruit itself. Now, this is conditional. The only way that's true is if those bugs were formed inside the fruit after the fruit was detached from the tree. Because if the fruit is attached to the tree and the bugs are inside that fruit and then you pull the apple off the tree, it's never seen the air, it's never been on the ground, but it was formed inside the tree itself. It's considered on the ground because it's attached to the tree which is in the ground. But if the apple would fall off the tree fall on the ground, and then the bug forms inside the apple. The bug is born inside eggs that are inside the apple, and it's never gone outside the apple and never been out in the air. Then it wouldn't be usher. It wouldn't be usher. So it had to be born out of talush and then formed inside the apple itself, never going outside. That's going to be forbidden. If it came out at one point and then went back in, then it's usher as well. That's considered ala aretz, even though it never really touched the ground. And by all those, it would be a chi of malchus if there was a kezayis of them, and not if there's just a berry, the actual creature itself. And that's why we check fruits and vegetables. We have to check fruits and vegetables because simply put, usually we cannot tell if the creature was formed when the apple was already detached or if when the apple was attached. And therefore we have to assume that it was formed when the apple was attached. Therefore we have to ostrate. it. In most of those cases, there's not much of a choice. We just assume that it's going to be ostrate. Yeah, Noah, what are you going to say? Hatched, hatched from the egg. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Only by bugs. Well, I mean, there's nothing else. No animal would be able to be small enough to be, you know, like mammal or a reptile or bird would be able to be small enough to fit inside an, you know, like a fruit when it's detached off the ground. Water. So, no, no, no. It doesn't apply. It only applies, you're right. It only applies by shrutsim of the water. And shrutsim of the water, even then, it would have to be tiny enough that it wouldn't look like it's born from other things. It sort of feels like it's born from the rot in the water, so to speak. It seems like it's spontaneously generated. Now, the Ksav Kabbalah brings this Rambam and says that where he lived, he lived in an area called Kenigsburg in Russia, near Russia. All fruits and vegetables, including most flour, barley, and, and rice, all had major issues of bugs. You can imagine. How in the world would they have taken care of these things back in the day? Now we have special lighting, right? And we're able to check with all these things. Like we can do lettuce. What do you think they did back then, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? How in the world were they supposed to check all this stuff? You did as best as you could, but their eyesight was probably horrible. And they don't have the glasses or the things that we have nowadays. So how in the world did they check everything? And we're not talking about special people who probably spent hours looking through. Normal, regular Jews, how in the world did they do it? And we see nowadays that there are major problems. And granted, there might be some issues of pesticides and whatever it is, but it seems like that this is always a problem. So Aksava Kabbalah said, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. You wouldn't be able to eat nowadays if we had to worry about bugs in that fashion. Now, what's the reason why? Bugs are obviously not the size of a kezayis. A kezayis is the size of an olive or a bigger olive, right? Obviously, bugs are usually not that size. If they are, those are scary bugs, and those are ones that you're probably not going to eat anyway. But the tiny little ones, like aphids, that you'll find in like different types of lettuce, and other type, little, you know, those tiny little red spiders and things like that, you'll find all over the place. So what do you do when you have them? Well, the issue is it's a barrier. A barrier means it is a full creature, and a full creature is considered usher 
just like a kezayis. Now, a kezayis of something that's also would give you malchus. A beria, the actual creature itself, without crushing it, just being the actual creature, would not be chai malchus, but it's still usher to eat. So what we do is, there are ways of getting rid of them, there are ways of freezing fruit or vegetables in order to get rid of them. There are uh, their eyes pop out, so they're not considered a full creature because some part is missing. There are ways of, you know, basically, what do they call it? Like, destroy them completely by crushing them completely so that there's nothing left. But that's not great because even crushing them, you won't always be able to crush every part of the fruit and vegetable. And that means there might be a part, a chunk that still exists. And in that chunk, there could be a bug. Okay, so there's not much you can do when it comes to stuff like that. And some of them are the same color as the stuff itself. It's really difficult to look through. So what did that Ksavah Kabbalah say? He brought down a famous tshuva from the Kresiu Plesi, Ravionis and Ibshitz. And he says, in this week's part, he says that most we shown him hold that a beria is batal be'elef. It's batal if you have a thousand times it. Now, in almost all foods, these bugs are so tiny. We're not talking about actual ants. Right, that's problematic. We had that issue here not too long ago. We had to throw out all of our cakes and brownies one week because we had an ant problem. The ants got into absolutely everything. Where I took a brownie, put it down in a plate, and three ants fell out of the brownie. Amazing, right? Absolutely amazing. So nobody got to eat any cakes or brownies that week. But that obviously is an issue. These are tiny bugs. There's no question that it's bottled the elef if you end up eating them. There's bottled elef. Says Rabbi Yonasan that is a hetter that will work in this case. Now, the Shokan Aruch doesn't mention that. And many, many Akronim argue with the crazy Uplesi. But the Ksav Kabbalah said there's nothing else we can do. We try searching for it. We don't have the equipment available to do it, so we can't do it. So what are we supposed to do? We have to rely on Rabbi Yonasan and say that it's bottled the elef even though, even though it's going against the Shulchan Aruch. If a person has the ability, he says, to check, like we do nowadays, we have the ability to check in almost all cases. And Baruch Hashem, the CRC website, has tons of ways to check almost anything. When you want to check something up, just look on the website. The OU website has great ideas. The Star K, they all have tremendous ideas how you can check everything with the, the equipment that you have in your own home and what you can do by each one of them. If you can check, then you have to check. You have no, no hetter to be makel. But if there's nothing you can do for whatever reason, you can't do anything about it, then it's something like that. I'll tell you, somebody just wrote to me and said that there, he knows quite a few people that will eat at Olive Garden, for example. Like an Olive Garden type of place, like a, you know, a not kosher restaurant that serves vegetables, and they have no problem doing that. But eating in a trafe restaurant, I would never, I would never have something trafe. Technically, Olive Garden does have flesh anyway, but regardless, right? They would never eat at a fully trafe restaurant. How could they eat at a fully trafe restaurant? Bugs in lettuce are six times worse than eating meat. If you eat a piece of non-kosher meat, you get one lav. And granted, it's malchus. You eat one piece of lettuce that has five bugs in it. You have 30 lavin. 30. 30 of them. Now, I'm not telling you, so you might as well eat trafe. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it is problematic no matter where you go. So when people ask me, can I get a salad in certain places? Can you? I don't know. Technically, yeah, but I can't guarantee it. Can I go to a restaurant that's pure vegan? Pure vegan. Now, listen, I'm not a kosher expert. That's not what I stand for. But what I tell people is, when people ask me is, you really have to worry about the vegetables because I know they don't eat bugs, but they don't consider the tiny little aphids that are there in lettuce as bugs. They don't consider that a problem. 
Marazayin, I don't think so, because everybody knows that these restaurants aren't kosher. Marazayin is that people will think. It, it, Rav Moshe has a famous shuvah Marazayin, and, and what it means. Somebody saw him driving after candle lighting, but before shkia, and told Rav Moshe, you shouldn't do that, because people will think you could do malacha after candle lighting. Rav Moshe said, you can do malacha after candle lighting. I'm not worried about that. Somebody who thinks that way is just a fool. It's just, if you light candles and accept Shabbos, then you can't do malacha after candle lighting. He said, but nonetheless, I'll stop doing it. But that's not marasayin. Marasayin is when you do something that makes people think this is a this is something that's mutter when it's really yasser. So that's something that's like a totally different story. It could even be, and I, you know, I've talked to Rabbi first about this quite a bit, that going to McDonald's and buying a Coke wouldn't be marasayin. I'm not telling somebody to do it, but it wouldn't be marasayin. I'll just tell you a quick story. I used to go to Lake Geneva. I used to go to Lake Geneva, and I, uh, it's Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and there's an ice cream place that's right by all the voting places. So it was a place where I looked up everything, and I saw everything, and I said to my kids, like, we went there once, and I said, okay, we can get this ice cream. And I wouldn't do it normally in a place like Chicago, but I was younger, and I, whatever it was, right? I think I was 27, 28, and I was like, okay, we can get this ice cream because this is what's kosher, and the other things are not whatever it was. So we got that in cups and whatever it was, and I made sure that they washed out the scoop, and we had one special thing, and I made sure that they didn't have it. Okay, whatever. It was a hatter. It was a kula, right? But that's what I did. About a year and a half later, I got a phone call from a huge kashrus agency. They called us up. They called me up and they said, "Are you Rabbi Zimmerman?" I said, "Yeah." He, they said, "Do you give a do you give hashkacha to this place in Lake Geneva? This this ice cream place?" I said, "No, of course not." They're like, "There are a hundred kids in a camp." that are all going there and eating there, claiming Rabbi Zimmerman says the entire place is kosher. They sold ham sandwiches there, all the cones. I have no clue where they came from, right? And everything was there, but they were eating everything, thinking that it was fake and bacon and everything because Rabbi Zimmerman gave hashkacha to such a place. When I found out later, what happened was my brother ended up hearing that I went to that restaurant, didn't know that I had only gotten little things of ice cream, and I said, my brother's been here, it must be kosher. And therefore, had everyone that he was in a camp with, everyone was eating from there, and everyone's claiming it's from me. Eventually, a kosher's agency found out about it, and somebody called me up and said, what's going on? And I immediately put the brakes on everything. I'm like, no. And from then on, I made that, that deal. I will not eat in a restaurant that technically could be kosher that doesn't have ashkacha on it. Because you have major issues. I have no idea, absolutely no idea what's going to be over there. So is Scoops kosher in Lake Geneva? Absolutely not. But what ended up happening? Everybody thought it was because I went there. I had that one thing. So is it Maris Ayn? That's not Maris Ayn. It's not an issue of Maris Ayn. Could there be issues? 100% there could be issues. There are always issues with that when you eat something that doesn't have that ashkacha. But this is worse because eating that piece of lettuce that might have bugs on it is six times worse than anything else. You might not get malchus from it, but there are six isurim involved. That's what ends up happening over here. So that's why I brought up the saksava kabbalah. Since we brought up this issue of bugs, one has to always be careful of this sort of thing and always be careful if something like this happens. Now, Bea, Vavom Abayz, as well as Chulin Samachtal Aleph says, there's another Isra over here. You cannot eat a chick that has not yet opened its eyes. We're talking about a little bird that doesn't yet, that didn't yet open its eyes, where it's somewhat there and somewhat not there. We have to treat it as if it's still something that's us, and we've got to be as careful as possible as we can be. It's a hint, says the Pardis Yosef, to something else entirely. You know what it means? A chick, a little baby chicken that hasn't yet opened its eyes. It means the following. We should not treat the world as if it's just a treat to our physical senses 
and rather use it in a different fashion, he says, to improve our spiritual state at all times. The chick that doesn't open its eyes is a person who's involved in Olam Hazeh, all in this world, not opening his eyes to the spirituality that's there. Paris Yosef gives a marshal to a merchant who goes to the marketplace with his son. His son has never been to the market before. He's never been to like a whole place where people are trading and doing everything and stuff like that. And the whole day, they're doing their work, they're doing their work, and that night, they decide to go to a restaurant together. So the merchant goes with his son, they go to this restaurant, they enter into the restaurant, and they see a bunch of guys in the corner that come from a faraway land. They have their hair in a really, really weird thing, their beards are all tied together, they look strange, and the son couldn't stop staring at them. He'd never seen people like these before. He'd never even seen people that looked like this before. So he kept staring. And the father, the merchant, turns to his son and said, stop staring. And he says, Abba, I've never seen people like this. I'm just shocked by it, right? So he said, yeah, they come from a very, very far away land, right? And that's what they look like over there. And everybody looks normal in that place. That's the normalcy by them. By us, it looks weird. But by them, that's what's normal. He said, I've got to have that coffee. The father said, what? He said, that coffee that they're drinking, I've got to have some of it. Father said, why? He said, they came all this way to drink that coffee in this restaurant? This coffee must be the best coffee in the world. I want some of that coffee. The father looks at him and says, son, they're not here to drink coffee. They're here because they want to buy and sell and get involved in business and they want to do everything around with us. The coffee is just because they happen to be here, so they're also drinking coffee. But it's not that the coffee brought them here. It's the money that they're going to make that brought them here and brought them all around. Says the way the party Joseph looks at it is that we run after taivas. We run after things without thinking about what it is we're really here for in the first place. Do you really think we're here for the food and drink that Olam Haza has to offer? The coffee that's there? No, we're here for the market. We're here for the mitzvahs that we're supposed to do, the Torah that we're supposed to learn, for all the ruchnias that we're supposed to be involved with. But we feel like little chicks running around with our eyes closed in the darkness. He says that's the idea of shrutzim, right, that are part of the arets, that we're only running for the things that are here on the ground as if there's something important to them. Rebel Yashav has a piece over here, but I'm going to skip it for right now. The vav in the word gachon is large. It's one of the letters in the Torah that are extra large. It's based on the Gemara Kedushin, Lamedim and Aleph, and Mesecha Sofrim, Perak Tesalach the reason why is because according to the Mesorah, it is the middle letter of the Torah. The letter Vav is the middle letter of the Torah itself. Rev Yosef in that Gemara in Kedushan asked, Wait a second, it's the middle letter of the Torah. Which one? As if, if there's an even number, right? Then you have to know, is it the end of the first half or is it the beginning of the second half? If it's the middle letter, which one is it? If there's an even number, it says Rev Yosef. And the Gemara says, we're not sure. Because we don't know how to count. Because even if we would go ahead and count the Torah, we're not experts in counting the letters like the people back then were. We can't count like they do, so we're not sure. We have absolutely no idea. So that's the reason. Even if it's off a little bit, we don't know because we don't know how to count properly. The Imre Emes says the hint behind Gachon, the wording of Holikal Gachon, which refers to a snake going on your belly, that being the middle of the Torah, is that even when a person feels they've learned more than half the Torah, Bidiktuk Rav, very, very well, going into everything, even the letters. I've learned every letter in the Torah. And going through, I've more, learned more than half of the Torah. He should remain as humble as ever, as if he's holech al-gachon. 
walking on his belly on the ground is if he shouldn't walk haughtily with his back straight up. He shouldn't walk that way. He should feel like he's on the ground. Even the snake, which originally walked on two legs, originally hinted you by the vav, because the vav looks like a big snake, right? A snake walking on its legs was then cut down and lost its legs because of gaiva itself. Anyone who has gaiva is going to be cut down like the snake, and that's the remez of the middle vav. Even though you've gotten through half the Torah, even though you've learned up until now so much stuff, don't be a snake. Don't be a snake that lost its legs and went down in its belly. That's why it's the middle letter. The Rabbeinu Ephraim in the Moshe of Zikanim says the vav refers to all the vavs that we have in the Torah. We have vav sivan, where we receive the Torah itself. Uh, it's one opinion, the other opinion is Zion sivan. But vav sivan, there are 6,000 years of the world, there are six words in Shema, there are six words in Bar Shem Kvamach Solom Vaed, as well as all the other things that be up there. There's the vav Amudim, the pillars that hold up the world itself, the six days of creation, the six Sidre Mishnayis, the, the, all, everything. You could just keep going in what six refers to, as well as the Nachash itself, as well as the Vav being the Nachash itself, and it's all hinting to in La'asid Lavo, the snake will get its legs back, says the Rabbeinu Ephraim, and will stand up straight again and be able to walk itself back. The Chsam Sofer in Drosho says, first letter in the Torah is a Bez, middle letter is a Vav, last letter, Yisrael, is a Lamed. Bez, Vav, Lamed are the letters Bul from the word Mabul. And the line is, is that Mar Cheshvan, the month of Cheshvan, is known as bitter. It's called the month of Bul, because that's when the Mabul started. The Mabul came about because of the sins of the Nachash. And therefore, we have to remember at all times, the way the Torah starts, ends, and goes into the middle, is that we have the ability of self-destruct, self-destruction. We can cause our own destruction if we don't use it wisely. And that's the reason why the Torah is filled with those letters itself. But as we kind of hinted to before, there is a problem. There are 304,805 letters in the Torah. It's not even. It's odd. 304,805. So now, if one counts to the middle, the middle letter should be number 152,403. That's what it should be. If you count it up together, 152,403. That's in Perches, Pasuk Chaf It's the Vav. It is a Vav. But it's the vav of Ishehu Lahashem. The vav of who? Ishehu Lahashem. It's a fire offering to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. That vav is is the right one. This vav that we mentioned over here of Gachon is number one hundred and fifty-seven thousand two hundred and thirty-six. That is off by a whopping four thousand eight hundred and thirty-three letters. Think about that for a second. We're off by 4,800 letters. That's not a mistake that you can make stam. And even if you don't know how to count, there's no way you're going to be off by 4,800. You'll be off by 100 maybe. You'll be off by 200. 4,800 is way too far off to say that this was a mistake and somebody just miscounted or, or that we're messed up in the different letters themselves. There's no way. There's just no way anybody could have mistaken that badly. So the parties, Yosef, actually brings down that it's likely there's a mistake in our Gemara, that it chose the wrong word. It said Gachon, but it didn't mean Gachon. It really meant Ishahu Hashem. And there's another lesson from the word Gachon and everything like that. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky answers based on the Grah, by Aleinu, in which he says all words that are attached to each other with a Maka. 
if you see that little dash on top, those letters are considered, those words are considered one. But that doesn't work because we're dealing with letters. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's answer doesn't even work for this. I'm not even so sure what it meant. So I was stumped by this for years. And I gave a shear on this, I think, eight years ago. And I brought up something by a Rav Yitzchak Zilber. If anybody remembers, Rav Yitzchak Zilber was, uh, was a refusenik, a Russian, brilliant, brilliant mathematician. He made Aliyah, and he passed away about 10 years ago. He passed away about 10 years ago. He came up with an unbelievably unique answer, which sounds like it's 100% correct. Again, remember, not only did it say that the Vav of Gachon is the middle letter of the Torah, it also, Rav Yosef said, on which side, as if there's an even number of letters, when really there's an odd number of letters. Says Rav Yitzhak it's not the middle letter of the total letters of the Torah. That's not what it is. You know what it is? It's the middle letters of the messed up letters of the Torah. There are 16 times in the Torah, one six, 16 times, where a letter is extra big or extra small. For example, and I have it down in the paper, the big Beis of Barashas, the small hay of Behibar Um, when God created the world, the small Chuf of Livko Sub by Avram Vino and Sarah, the small Kuf of Katsti Bechayai, which is Rivka, the big Nun in Notzer Chesed Lalafim by the Tefillah of Moshe, the big Resh in Acher, again by Moshe Rabbeinu, the small Aleph in Vayikra, obviously in the beginning of Vayikra, the small Mem in Mokda at the beginning of Parsha Stav, big Vav in Gachon, our big Vav, that's number nine, big Gimon Behis Galach by Nazir, big Yud in Yigdal Na Koach Hashem, big Ayin in Shema's number 12, number 13, the big Dalid in Echod by Shema and Echod, number 14 is the Lamed in Vayashlichem in Parshas Nitzavim, the big He in Ha La Hashem Tigmuluzos in Hazinu, and the small Yud in Teshi, where we were made weak, right, also in Hazinu. 16 times. Number nine is our Pasuk of the Vav Gachon. It is the middle letter of 16, the middle letter is in between 8 and 9. Said Rav Yosef, Mehai Gisa, is it the end of the first 8? O Mehai Gisa, is it the beginning of the last 8? And that, the Gemara says, we don't know, because that we don't know how to count. We don't know if our Mesorah of those big and small letters hasn't changed over the years. So maybe the Sofrim had a different amount of bigger, small letters. We know that Vav of Gachon is the middle. We have no idea if it's 16 or 32 or 48 or however many letters there are like that. We know in our Chomish, it's the first of the last letters, meaning it's number nine of the 16 and it's in the middle. That sounds like it's the real answer. It sounds like that's the pshat. There's another one he says for Dorosh Dorash, which is another issue altogether, but it's an unbelievable pshat. The Chidah asks, what difference does it make? Why do we care about all this? In other words, does it really matter what the halfway word or letter is? Do we really care? Why does it have to go through and say, oh, it's the Vav of Gachon? He says, there might be an afghan here. Maybe there's a difference to darshan the words or letters in many different places in the Torah to learn a halachic lesson. Rabbi Akiva darshaned every tag in the Torah, every crown and every letter in the Torah. And he came out with tile tile halachos, tons of halachos that he learned from every crown that he got from every single one that was mentioned over there. It says in Menachos Chavtes like that. So maybe there are things to learn from here. Maybe from the fact that there's a small vav or a big vav or something like that in the middle of the Torah, there is a lesson halachically, not just 
midrashically or allegorically, but an actual something lahalacha. We don't have it. We don't know what it is. But maybe there is something, says the Chidah, so don't throw it out. If the Gemara says it, it means there's something there. We just don't know what it is. The Chsam Sofer brings a remez to Erevin. Yud Gimel Listen to this. We never pass on like Rameir. Do you know that? We never pass on like Rameir. It's very few times in the, in the Gemara where we pass on like Rameir. You know why? The Gemara in Erevin, Yud Gimel Beis, says why. Because Rameir, what? No, 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 no. It's Rabbi Eliyad. Well, he was, sort of, at the end of Horius, you mean? At Yugimbo and Beis. So he wasn't put in Kharon. He was thrown out of the base matters, but they still sent Shilas to him and he still answered. That's in Yudalim and Aleph. So he was. He was known as Acher, but uh, Acherim, I'm sorry, Acherim, or his Rebbe, Elisha Menavui, was Acher. But Remer was good. Rebbe Eliyad ben Horkinus was thrown into Kharon. But we still possibly like Rebbe Eliyad ben Horkinus in many, many different places. But uh, Remer seems to be something different. Why don't we possibly like him? Says the Gemara. Because you never knew what Remer held. Rameir could go in either direction. He could argue one way and then the other way in the same shear. He could tell you this is why it's mutter and that's why it's usher. So when people came out of Rameir's shear, they had no idea what he actually held. Because he would say, here's why it's mutter, here's why it's usher. So when somebody would quote Rameir later on and say, here's what Rameir said, they had no idea if he meant it lehalacha or if he was just trying to say it to argue the other side. To argue the other points, says Sam Sofer, you didn't know. The greatest chachma, he says, is being able to figure out how something Tameh is really Tahor, and vice versa. To say, this thing that's Tameh, I could make it Tahor, and vice versa. The Gemara says, there was a Talmud who was able to be Matara Sheretz. He's able to take a bug, and he could be Matarit. He could tell you that it's Tahor, even though it died. And we have Shmona Shrutzim. He's able to make it Tahor in 150 different ways. He could do 150 different things and tell you why it's going to be Tahor. Ravina got up and said, Oh, I got one. I got one. What's the one, said Ravina? Ravina, the author of our Gemara, or the collaborator of our Gemara, corroborator of our Gemara, person who put a lot of it together. Ravina came along and said, If a Nachash, which causes death and destruction in the world, if the Nachash, the snake, caused such death and destruction, yet if it dies, it's Tahor, it's not one of the Shemona Shratzim. The dead snake is able to be touched and you don't become Tomei. Then a Sheret, like let's say a turtle, which is not going to kill anyone. It's not going to destroy anything, right? It's not going to do that. Then if you touch it, it for sure should become Tahor. Do you get it? Even though the Torah says that the turtle is Tahor, is Tomei, I'm sorry. It's one of the Shemona Shratzim. The Tzav is something that's Tomei. But if a snake is Tahor, then Kol Shekene, Tzav should be Tahor. That was the Kalvachomer that he used. And it's a way of Chachma to be able to go through. That's the idea behind it over here. Since the Torah can be darshaned in any way, we take the Vav of Gachon and we say it's right in the middle. You can make a decision to be Tahor or Tameh and the Vav of Gachon helps us understand there's something to be learned from over here. And that brings us to the Vilna Gon. The Vilna Gon is famous. Vilna Gon says, why would the Gemara mention that Ravina only had one? There's an unnamed Talmud who has 150 different ways. And Ravina is like, I got one. Isn't that embarrassing? A random guy could tell you 150. And Ravina, the great sage, only has one? Doesn't that sound a little weird? Why would the Gemara do that? Just say the Ravina also had a few. You don't have to say the Ravina only had one. Says the Vilna Gon, there really is only one way. This is it. What I just said about the snake, it's only the one way. So what do you mean he had 150 ways? He said, it was a hint. It was a hint. You know what it was a hint to? Beautiful grub. In Perak Chav Zayin Yud Chesin Shmos, it says, Orech HaChatzer, the length of the Chatzer, Meo Ba'ama, 
it was a hundred amos. The length of the entire chutz was a hundred amos. The rochav chamishim b'chamishim, and the width was fifty amos. Okay, hundred amos long, fifty amos wide. That was the length of the chutz. Says the gra, the trup over mea ama, the trup over mea bo ama is kadma v'azla. Kadma, he got up v'azla, and he went. The trup over chamishim b'chamishim is munach rivii. Munach Rivi'i. It went down, so to speak, on all four. On all four. It's as if it's a hint to the snake. The snake was walking on its hind legs, walking straight up, and it went down, not on all four. The word Rivoi can also mean to lie down. But it lied down on, the snake is like that. That's the hint. That was the Mea'u Chamishim. The riddle is, the Talmud was able to figure it out from the word Mea and from the word Chamishim. Mea is Kadma Va'azla, Chamishim is Munach Revi. It's a hint to the snake, which was Kadma Va'azla and then Munach Revoi, that lie down over there. That's where you learn. If you learn it from the snake, you'll have a remez, you'll have some type of a hint that hints to what that riddle refers to to show you how Asharitz becomes Tahor. There weren't 150 drashos. There was one. It was learned from the word mea and the word chamishim. You get it? Isn't that brilliant? Absolutely brilliant. An unbelievable pshat. There's a Ben Ishchai over here, and I highly suggest people find it. There's a chidah over here as well about the remez that this all refers to over here. And another gra that's written in the Gemara and Bechoros Chasimah Beis. We have to stop over here, so we'll stop with this over there. Have a great Shabbos, everyone.